we have few Bibles now, and um, it's the translation we're using. So if you want to grab one of those it, and go to page 575, it's Isaiah 54, 1 through 10. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations, and will be people, will, uh, the de- and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be moved, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God of the everlasting covenant, the one who promised to be God to his people, to bring peace between us and you, to bring peace on this earth. We humble ourselves before you and we turn to hear the good news this morning. We pray that we um, would be transformed from mourning and despair, from loneliness and misery because of our own sin and because sin's done against us, and that we would rejoice in the good news of your Son and that we'd be renewed that we'd mount up, that we would expand our tents because of your faithful love to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're returning to the book of Israel, uh, Isaiah, after a week off. uh, Last week, doing a, a special message on this place that God has given us from John 4. We're going back to uh, Isaiah and this series um, on the Holy One of Israel, focusing on how Isaiah shows us and gives us a vision for who God is. We've focused especially on the attributes of God and the character of God, and we've looked at how he is holy. Uh, he is not like us. He is, he is different, transcendent, unlike us, created things, and also pure goodness, pure light. 
And we talked about um, his eternality and his power and that he is our creator and the ruler of all things. Now, to gain a clearer vision of the one true and living God, that is our aim in this series, to gain a vision of who he is, but not in this abstract way, not in just sort of, you know, we can explain these systematic categories of God's character, but to understand who God is in a personal way that connects to the everyday circumstances of our lives, right? Um, God is absolutely transcendent, we, we've been learning. He is unlike us, eternal, almighty, all these things, and yet these are not just high lofty truths because Isaiah shows us that God is near to us. He is near to the humble and to the contrite, to those who are weary, those who have been uh, betrayed, those who have been unfaithful. God is near to us. And I think today we're going to see again, as we look at the steadfast love of God, how important it is that we get a full picture of who God is. Uh, in Matthew, uh, not too long ago, we talked about the centrality of love in the Christian faith. And a few years ago, we looked at 1 John and we had a, a message about the love of God and that God is love. Um, this morning, we're looking at, again, this idea that God is love. He is steadfast love. But um, this is a love in particular that is talked about in light of our own refusal to love God and one another. Uh, our own unfaithfulness that leads us into a place of misery. We see the steadfastness of God's love for us. And part of what we're going to see today that's in our passage um, is this question of God's anger. And of course, um, that's a, a big challenge. A lot of us wrestle with this idea that God can be a God of wrath and anger uh, and justice and also be a God of love. And, and maybe we feel a little bit of a tension between those two things. Um, it's very common to talk about in the Bible, well, there's the God of the Old Testament, he's angry and there's justice. And then the God of the New Testament is a God of love. And um, maybe even in your own life. You've, you've felt this, that uh, we talk about the love of God, and yet in your experience, there's, you feel that maybe God has been angry with you or he has, he has done wrong to you by what he has brought in your life. And so you wrestle with this. How can we believe that God is a God of steadfast love when this has happened to me in my life or you've seen it happen in other people's? And what I want to hopefully see today is that this, um, this is a tension but this is not really a tension in God himself, and it's not a tension in Scripture either. Uh, so I want to hopefully show you how these things fit together. And we're jumping into Isaiah 54 here, and I want to tell you a little bit about what's going on um, in the chapters surrounding it. Um, remember, in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, um, it's about Isaiah's prophetic ministry in, to the kings of his day in Judah and Jerusalem in the southern kingdom after Israel is divided into two peoples. And um, in chapters 40 through 55, um, Judah, or excuse me, Isaiah begins to give a message of comfort to Judah because in the first 39 chapters, he was basically saying, you're going to go into exile. You have not been faithful and you're going to go into exile. You're going to be taken captive by Babylon. And then in chapters 40 through 55, he begins to speak a message of comfort to Judah a hundred years or more later when they actually are in exile. And he's giving them a message of hope. And in the middle of this passage, in 49 through 53, we have this sort of famous figure in the Bible, this suffering servant, the servant of the Lord, um, where uh, the prophet Isaiah designates the restored people of Israel as this servant, but there's a sense in which this figure is more than just 
Israel renewed and coming out of exile, that there's a, there's, this is God who has come in some way to be a servant of God and yet to suffer for the people of God and bring them out of, um, out of exile. And so that's what we see leading up to the passage we're reading today. And in chapter 54, Isaiah is then calling those in exile to rejoice in response to this good news of the suffering servant. And in this passage, Isaiah uses a metaphor that's woven very deeply in all of Scripture, and that's this metaphor of of marriage. And he talks about Israel as a wife in in two different ways. And I want you to understand this is a metaphor for the whole people of God. Um, And so that shapes the way we understand what God is saying here. So today I just want to look at this metaphor, first at the wife and then at the husband, in the metaphor that he uses. So the first uh, thing I want us to see today in point one is uh, that that Israel is the wife of Yahweh, okay? And I want us to focus on the first six verses or so, and I'm just going to be highlighting a couple of the phrases as we go along. But um, Israel is the wife of Yahweh. And this is a, an image that goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, that, that humanity actually, as a whole, is the bride of their creator. And the reason that image is used is because um, God has created us to experience intimate and loving and joyful communion with him. And so a marriage itself, this two becoming one, is meant to be a picture of the sort of bond of unity and love that God has intended for humanity as a whole. And that's what is pictured in the passage we read a moment ago, actually, in Genesis 1 and Uh, further on into chapter 2, where humanity is pictured as a people that is meant to have communion with God. God comes into this garden. It's a temple. It's a place where he dwells with humanity, and there's supposed to be unity and fellowship and love between them that is pictured in Adam and Eve's relationship. And um, as the story of the Bible moves along, and there is a rejection of God, our maker, um, and God begins to call a people to himself again in the person of Abraham. And then this people goes into slavery in Egypt and is in bondage. We see that God, again, re- renews this picture of marriage in his people. And so Exodus, the story of God delivering Israel out of slavery, is in some sense a story of God rescuing his bride. He, he delivers her from her bondage. And then at Mount Sinai, they have a ceremony essentially where they get married. There is this covenant that is formed. And then they, they build a tabernacle and the Lord fills the tabernacle with his presence. And this signifies his, his life with his people and in intimate communion. The love of, of God for his people, though, is not just for them to experience joy, but also for them to be fruitful. Right? That is part of what marriage is oriented towards, is fruitfulness. And God wants his relationship with Israel to be a fruitful relationship because he wants them to be a blessing to the nations. Israel is to be a light. They're to live in righteousness according to the covenant that God has given them. And this relationship is meant to bear fruit so that all the nations are drawn to God again and that they too might live in righteousness before God. And that is how they were to be a blessing to the nations, which is what God had promised Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12. Israel was to be a faithful bride to love and serve Yahweh alone and to not go after other gods. So when we turn to our passage here in chapter 54, and this, this image of marriage is resurrected, it is, it is rooted in this larger story, and it's rooted in what is said in chapter 1 of Isaiah. In fact, if you go back to chapter 1 and you look at verse 21, 
um, explicitly, Isaiah calls Jerusalem, which is sort of representative of the whole, um, that he says pretty crassly that they've been unfaithful. In fact, he, he says that this city that was meant to be holy has become a harlot. Um, they, they have gone after other gods. They're worshiping other gods. They're not being faithful to worshiping God alone. And so in worshiping other gods, they have begun to obey and live according to other gods. And that has led them to disobey and break covenant with God. And that has led to massive injustice in Israel. There is bribery, Isaiah says. There is the neglect of widows and orphans. Vulnerable people in the community are not being cared for. There's greed, there's violence, there's theft. And so that is why Israel ends up in exile, as they have been idolatrous, disobedient, and ultimately they have been unjust. And so when we get to chapter 54, Isaiah is addressing Israel as a wife, but as a wife that has been barren and who has been um, a, a widow, like she has been cast off of her husband. And so if you look at verse 1, there's a call to sing because he's actually calling them to rejoice now, but he calls Israel a barren wife. Um, because they have failed to bear this fruit of righteousness. It's a metaphor, it's an image, for the, the, the love between God and his people has not been fruitful for the blessing of the nations. And so like a barren woman who mourns her, her lack of fruitfulness, Israel is in this place of barrenness and she's despairing. She is, uh, she is empty, it says. And then he also goes on in um, verse 4 to talk about Israel as a widow almost, or as a wife that has been cast off by Yahweh. Jerusalem and Judah um, went into exile um, and became slaves in bondage there. And this is a pretty rough image, but in the ancient world, if you were married uh, as a woman, that was, that was your place of protection and safety. And um, if, if you unfaithfully um, went to be with other men, that husband was very likely to cast you off. And, um, and if that happens, then you became incredibly vulnerable uh, because who was going to care for you, provide for you? Um, it's unlikely that you would own land or have a business or anything like that. And so most likely uh, the woman would go and seek to find another husband or someone who would take her in. But typically this would lead to a pattern of the woman being taken in and then cast out again. And so um, the unfaithful woman would end up being like a harlot uh, who is making her living off of uh, liaisons with men to the point of becoming uh, likely taken advantage of and even treated as a slave. And so that's the image that, that God is using here for Israel. They've been unfaithful. They've prostituted themselves out. And now that has gone on so much that they have become a slave uh, to Babylon. And he, the husband, has, has essentially left her to her own decisions there. And so Israel's idolatry, as is described in this passage, has brought about desolation, um, this emptiness, this, this depression. There, uh, he talks about Israel as grieved in spirit in verse 6, uh, as filled with shame and disgrace in verse 4, uh, with fear in verse 4. And ultimately, all of these words are describing the exile of Israel into Babylon. And what we need to understand uh, about this is that Israel, uh, in God's larger story, always intended to be a picture of humanity as a whole. What God does with Israel is ultimately the way that God wants to relate to all of humanity. And so this passage doesn't just speak to this unique event in history with God's dealings with Israel. It speaks to the nature of how God relates to all of his creatures. And so I want to take a moment to just highlight what this says about 
um, what Christians believe about sin and about being sinners, okay? Um, because when we say as Christians and as a church that people are sinners, we don't mean by that simply that, that people fail to obey these sort of arbitrary, stuffy rules made by a power-hungry God. That's often the way the church sounds and the way we talk about sin. It's like, you guys aren't obeying all the little kind of nitpicky, arbitrary rules this really powerful being has come up with, uh, and so you're bad and we're good, right? Um, sin is not merely about rules. In fact, it's way, way deeper than that. Sin is ultimately about that which brings misery and addiction and ultimately death. When we say people are sinners, we say that because um, what we're saying is that people um, always are driven to fulfill their desires. And as sinners, we set our desires on created things, on things that are temporary, on things that cannot last, things that cannot ultimately satisfy us. And because we love those created things in an inordinate way, in an elevated way, um, we do all sorts of things that distort the way that God has called us to live in the world. Um, I recently watched uh, the movie Forrest Gump. Um, this, this may be older than some of you. Uh, you may be, has anyone not seen that movie? Has anyone not seen Forrest Gump? A few, okay, most of you have seen it. Okay, well, I think this is a great picture of what I'm talking about. Um, if you think of the character Jenny, um, right? Forrest loves this childhood friend, um, and she um, goes off in her life. She had a very rough upbringing, but throughout her life, she is running from one wicked man to the next. And, and this plays out, right? And Forrest encounters her, and then, you know, he usually stands up for her. Um, but we see sort of in these snip, snippets throughout the movie that Jenny is, is um, not willing to go and be with Forrest, who loves her, but always going after these other men that she thinks are going to make her happy. But ultimately, where does she end up? She ends up on a ledge at one point, almost willing to take her life. She is empty. She's grieved. She's a shell of herself. You can see that she's ashamed of how she's lived and what, what her decisions have brought her to do. She's afraid, right? And the whole time, she has a man that loves her and would treat her well. That, um, you know, I won't spoil the story, but you can, you can think about where that might go. But she has him... A, you know, ready the whole time. And yet she's running after wicked lovers, okay? That, that is the picture in the Bible of what sin is all about, is that our loves are messed up. <laughs> We're loving the wrong sorts of things. And because we love the wrong sorts of things, we start doing all sorts of things that are destructive to us and to other people. And the result of that is that it brings us to a place of misery and emptiness and loneliness and shame and fear and a sort of bondage or addiction. And all of that, all of that ultimately takes us to death. And there are different stages of this. So you might say that sounds pretty extreme, but there are different stages of how idolatry works in our life. So early on, when we start looking to something that we love and that we think is going to bring us joy and fulfillment and satisfaction that God has made, ultimately, uh, or excuse me, initially, there's a very low cost to serving that thing. It doesn't cost us a lot. It seems harmless. Um, we kind of function pretty well trying to get that thing in our life. Um, and there's typically a, a fairly large return. There, it brings some satisfaction. that Otherwise, it wouldn't work. I mean, we wouldn't go after things if there wasn't an initial return. And we don't really see how this relationship is functioning and how um, we're putting ourselves in a very dangerous place. And we kind of downplay 
the significance of this of this idolatry, of this worship. And that's that's the first stage. And then as time goes on, we enter into a new stage where the cost that that idol demands of us starts to grow a little bit. It gets a little bit, we have to work a little harder to get what it's promising. And the return, when we do what we're supposed to, um, gets a little lower. It starts to, to demand more and more of us and we find ourselves kind of having to strive a good bit to, to keep up our life and to keep getting what this thing promises. And we feel like, though, we're still in control. I'm still, still in control here. But then we move to the third stage. And in this third stage, um, the cost that that idol demands of us becomes extraordinarily high. And we become very bitter at what it costs of us. And there's almost no return for, for actually getting from that idol, what we want. And ultimately, we start becoming a slave and we start doing things that we never thought that we would do and we didn't think were in us. And we have this deep craving that makes us miserable and, and we find ourselves in pain. It, this, is, you know, this is what addiction looks like. We can recognize that with like substance addiction, but we all become addicts and we become slaves to our idols. And so um, when the Bible talks about sin, it's like, you know, do this, don't do that. These are not just sort of stuffy rules. They're meant to point us to a life where our love is set on God. And we go after him with all of our lives. And then we begin to live in the world in the way that he calls us to live, because ultimately those are the ways that bring life. But we are like Jenny, or we are like Judah, and we go after other lovers. And we're not faithful to God, and it brings misery in our lives. I, I read a great um, novel recently, or I listened to it. Someone told me recently, you have to say you listened to it. You didn't read it if you listened to it. So I listened to a great story recently. It's not a novel. It's a, it's a true story. And um, this author writes about how his marriage um, basically fell apart when his wife revealed that she loved another man. And it was a beautiful book. It's a tough book. Um, it was painful to read. It was raw and it was dark. But um, the story basically is about this, this marriage um, where the wife, they both had issues. And what's beautiful about the book is the husband talks a lot about his own problems and the way he contributed to all this. But um, as the story goes along, you find out that this wife had um, been left by her father. Her family was abandoned. Um, and she had these pains of her childhood that she never dealt with. It was too painful for her to go in there and to try to experience healing. And so she avoided that. But it led her to not be able to, to be in a healthy marriage with her husband where she couldn't talk about things that bothered her. And so it just kind of became this facade and they had the shell of a marriage. And then she began to have this neighbor that she would talk to that for whatever reason, he was, he was life-giving. And this led to years of conversations and intimacy that ultimately led her to realize, you know, she loved this other man and not her husband. And, um, and so as the story goes on, I won't say all of it because you might want to read this book. I'm not going to say what it is. You can ask me later if you want. But um, as the story goes on, she ends up moving in with this lover, um, but it, she gets to this place where she is so miserable and so scared and so ashamed um, that she finally cries out and calls her husband from the apartment of her lover. And, uh, and he comes and he drives over and he moves her out and he helps her get back and um, he gets her out of this kind of messy situation. But what started as something that she saw as life-giving to her ended up being corrosive and destructive and miserable and lonely and empty. And um, her husband rescued her, but she, there was still this long process of like getting healing and figuring out what was driving her and 
um, for them to, to work through things in their marriage. It didn't solve everything, but there was this renewal that could take place. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And I think it's sort of a picture. I mean, it's a marriage metaphor. That's what God is using here of what God does with his people. And so that's the, the second thing that I want us to see um, today um, is idolatry and sin takes us to exile, to death, far away from our home, to misery, um, away from God, away from his blessing, uh, from his peace and prosperity and provision. Um, it takes us into angerness and bitterness and hopelessness and all of that. Uh, but then we see a picture of who God is in all of this. Um, you know, how, how do you think God should feel about his people if that's how they've lived? You know, how should this husband feel about this wife who has fallen in love with another man and taken off? Well, um, we see that he's angry. <laughs> uh, and that's the picture that Isaiah gives here. God is uh, an angry but a loving husband. And that, that's a tension immediately, right? That the love of God and the anger of God are um, right there together. And there's not really a tension between these things, even though they're not equal either, right? Uh, look at what he says in verse 7 and 8, um, where explicitly God says that he is angry and that he even deserted his people. In verse 7, it says, for a brief moment, I deserted you, right? This is the language of casting off the wife. Like she, She's been unfaithful and he let her go her own way. You cannot return into this home and be my wife. In verse uh, 8, in overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. So God is saying their idolatry and their sin provoked his anger. And you have to ask yourself, why did God get angry there? Because like, why would, why would I get angry? Or why would you get angry if your spouse was unfaithful? Well, it'd be because, uh, it'd be because you were suffering. You were hurting. You, you were um, betrayed. But remember what we've seen about God in Isaiah. God is not in need of you. God is not um, harmed by your unfaithfulness. God is full of life and joy. And so when you sin against him, he's not in the corner crying at um, how much you've hurt him. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't experience grief, but God is full. This doesn't take away from his joy. And so when God gets angry, it's because he loves his people and he loves his world. And it's really important that we understand that. Um, Israel's sin has harmed Israel. Israel's sin has harmed the world because they have failed to be a righteous people that invited people into the ways of life. I mean, just imagine that you gave your child, if you have a child, this wonderful present. Um, maybe, let's say you gave them a, a drone, okay? And they are so excited to play with this drone and you've kind of helped them set it up and then they're going to have their friends over and they're going to fly this drone together at this party and it's going to be this big celebration. And you say, okay, we've got it all set up. Now don't touch the drone. Don't mess with it until everybody gets here and we can use it together and it's going to be this beautiful thing. And so you walk away and then your child starts flying the drone boop, straight into the pond, destroyed, ruined. And now the, the party that you were going to have and their joy and um, all the joy of everyone there is, is gone. It's not going to happen. And the father and mother come back and they go, well, what have you done? You, you, you ruined this gift that I gave you. You didn't listen to me. Um, and, and I'm angry about that, not because I wanted to play with the drone, but because I wanted you to experience joy and your friends to experience joy. And that's the sort of anger that we see here. God deserts Israel um, into exile. Um, this is what his love directed towards sin looks like. He hates their sin. He hates our sin. He does not tolerate it. 
because he doesn't want to see his world destroyed. He hates our sin. Now, he is patient. He's not flying off the handle in anger. He's not got a bad temper. He is patient. It's a, it's a low-grade, slow-building frustration and anger at our hardened, stubborn rebellion against him. But ultimately, God says, I'm going to put an end to this destructiveness. And so God judges Judah. He disciplines her. He, he allows her to be taken into exile for her unfaithfulness. But the contrast that Isaiah makes here is important. He says it's not forever. It's not but a moment. And he says, rejoice because I'm going to gather you back in compassion and love. Look at verse 7. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. His desertion was with the intention to gathering back them back. He hid his face from them, but in compassion, he is going to bring them out of exile and bring them again into his loving, gazing presence. And this is important for us to understand. This shows the asymmetry of God's anger and love. Okay. Um, now I've talked about this already in this series that all that is in God is God. And what I mean by that is when we use language to talk about what God is like, we're using words that are distinct things to describe something that language fails to be able to fully comprehend. And so God is not a composite of love and anger and um, faithfulness and patience. and all. He's not a composite of these independent attributes. These are just words we're using to try to describe the one true essence, the one true God who is living eternally forever. And so when we say God is just, or he's, he's, he's got wrath and he's loving, we're not saying these are two kind of equal things and they're both kind of in God. We're trying to, to speak to what he's like. But what we see in the story of the Bible and the way God deals with us is, yes, he has anger towards our sin, but much deeper than that and much more constant and much more um, eternal is God's faithful and steadfast love for us. His anger is but for a moment. It is brief, but his compassion is everlasting. Uh, this is why uh, in the second commandment, it talks about this warning that those who commit idolatry, it says it's going to um, go down to the, to the third and fourth generation. But it says his steadfast love endures for a thousand generations. It far out see, out, uh, outweighs and exceeds the moment of anger and discipline um, and justice that God brings to bear on our sin. God's desire to bless is deeper his anger is secondary. It is aimed at dealing with our sin. God is a God of steadfast love. And that's what we see in verses 9 and 10, where he, he mentions the flood. He says, all this that's going on with Judah in exile is sort of like the flood. You know, the flood was this moment of great anger and wrath where God cleansed the world. But, but his enduring love for creation is evident in the fact that the flood came to an end and out of that birthed a new world where God would continue to provide rain in season and where people could live and thrive, but he had to deal with the, the depth of depravity that had developed in that day. And he's saying, as sure as the mountains are, right? It, it, how hard is it to level a mountain? That's not going to happen very often. He says, even more sure than that is the steadfast love of God that will not depart from his people. And so the question is, how do we know that that is what God is like? How, how do we know this is the right understanding of God's love and anger? And how do we know ultimately that we can trust him? 
And it really goes back to this figure I talked about earlier in um, chapters 52 and 53 that Isaiah mentions, this suffering servant, where God says that he is going to bring Israel out of exile through this figure that would bear their grief, um, that would carry the shame of their unfaithfulness, that would feel their sorrow, that would be stricken and afflicted and pierced and oppressed, and that ultimately would be killed in some way pierced for their transgressions. And friends, ultimately we know in the story of God that that is about Jesus Christ, that God, our maker, is not just our maker. It says uh, in this passage that he is our redeemer. And so God came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ, the true servant of the Lord, the, the one who is faithful, and that he suffered sin and he suffered all the effects of sin in order for us to be forgiven and cleansed and set free. So we can trust God because we know that his anger was not um, just poured out on us and he remained distant from that. His anger ultimately is poured out on himself, that his own son came into the world to bear that anger so that we could actually live and be set free from our sin. He paid the price with his own blood. His body went to death on a cross to take the guilt of his people. His blood was shed to cleanse her and to um, uh, renew her so that she could hold her head up high without shame, but be holy and blameless. He ransomed her from slavery to sin and death. Friends, that is the picture of steadfast love. That is the evidence of God's steadfast love for us. And this is good news to everyone, not just the church, because anyone can get in on this. Anyone can join God's people. It's freely offered to all to put our faith in Jesus the one who died for us, so that we could experience this steadfast love and life. So this morning, I want us to turn to what Isaiah is actually calling us to. And I said earlier that this is a call to rejoice. It's a call to sing in light of this good news. We are to rejoice in the steadfast love of God because it's been manifested to us in the person and work of Jesus, who is the faithful groom. He's the true husband of God's people. And he washes us of our sin and he weds us and he blesses and honors us. And so um, here's just a couple of things I want you to take away from this. Um, that part of the Christian life, in fact, a big part of the Christian life, is that we regularly sing and rejoice in the steadfast love of God. Um, this, is, this has got to be a habit in our lives because um, we are pulled in all sorts of different directions to love all sorts of things that God has made that are often good, sometimes not good. But we're pulled in all these different directions, and so we have to have a habit of coming and rejoicing and celebrating in what God has done for us in Jesus. This is why when we gather on Sunday, worship is so important, because it redirects our hearts from the idols that we worship, and it helps us set our hearts again on Jesus and to be thankful for the life he's given us. Um, but I also want us to see that we need to believe in the steadfast and gracious love of God and not fear. That's one of the things that Isaiah says to them in verse four, do not fear. And you can see why it would be easy to be afraid, right? If, if we've been unfaithful and our sin has taken us to a place of misery, and if we feel like we're in bondage or we've done things that are so shameful or we're so stuck, there's no idea how we can get, get out of this. Isaiah says, don't fear. The steadfast love of God means he has not abandoned you. You will not be stuck in your sin forever. I will not let that happen. And so um, just like that husband in that story went and, and rescued his bride out of that place, she was 
she was in misery. She had put herself in a really bad place. And he comes and he pulls her out of that. God's promise to us is not just that we get forgiveness, but that he will actually rescue us from our bad habits and our addictions. It doesn't always happen overnight. It's a slow process, but God will ultimately release us from the power of sin. And so thirdly, that means we can hope in God. Um, you know, for some of us, and I'm using this metaphorically, our, our barrenness, the emptiness that we experience because of our sin is so painful that it becomes hard for us to hope in God because it, it, it runs the risk of being disappointed, right? It's easier not to hope because if I hope, I could get hurt again and it'll hurt worse this time. And, um, and everything Isaiah is saying here is to a people who have every reason to, to live that way. They, they are in exile in a completely different country under the strongest power of the time. How in the world could they believe God would bring them back again and that they can have joy? They don't even want to hope that that could happen because it could hurt too much. And Isaiah says to them, fear not, hope in God. Sing, because God is going to bring you out of this exile. And then I wanted to say lastly, and I've gone way over time, um, is that the flip side of all this is that um, if, if this is the nature of our God, that he is this God of steadfast love, if we have been loved like this, then, friends, we ought to love one another. If, if we can have hope in God for what he will do in us, then we, we ought to also have hope in God for what he can do for other people. And so um, as painful and as difficult as forgiveness is, um, we cannot refuse to forgive other people. And I, I say that with all the caveats uh, that we talk about here at Trinity, that forgiveness doesn't mean just running right back into abusive situations. I'm not saying that at all but to say, I am not going to hold this person's sin against them and ultimately cut them off with no possibility of ever returning, regardless of their repentance. I'm, they're dead to me. We cannot do that as Christians because God has not treated us that way. He has shown us steadfast love. And so we have to learn to become people that can love unfaithful people. And, uh, and so as we go to the table um, today, uh, I, I want to encourage us to come to this table rejoicing and singing that God is a God of steadfast love. Because in the meal, um, we're given this picture of Jesus who gave his body and shed his blood that we might be released from our sin and rescued and brought together again in this loving communion um, with our Heavenly Father. And that's actually what we experience when we come in faith to this table. So let's pray together.